Welcome to Java with Julie. I'm Julie Slattery, your host, and this podcast is a listener-supported production of Authentic Intimacy, a ministry that helps you make sense of God and sex. And today I have a fan favorite with me, Hannah Nitz. You have not been on Java with Julie much lately. What's been up with that, Julie? Do we need to talk about that? Yes, we do. You gotta, you gotta stop having babies for a minute. I know. I keep having these babies, Julie. Who would have guessed? Yeah, my. Let me think. My youngest is now seven months. Uh-huh. So we got a seven-month-old, two-year-old, five-year-old. But I made it. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm on the microphone. There you are. I don't know how you did it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Caleb. Yeah. So uh-huh. we're here. Yeah. So hopefully your your life will calm down in the future and yeah. you can be on more. I'll be back eventually. Yeah. But in the meantime, we've been recording all kinds of episodes, Hannah, that someday you're going to come back to because you're yes. going to be like, oh no, what do I do with this? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I know. I know. There's such a wealth of information with Java with Julie. I feel that every time I scan through my podcast app, the variety, the exciting range of topics, you hit it all. We, we do our best. I know. It's yeah. awesome. Yeah. And the cool thing about this conversation today is I'm a big picture thinker. I mm-hmm. like to kind of take a step back, get a summary, get a big picture. And that's kind of what you're doing today for the whole past year of Java with Julie. Yeah. This is the last episode of 2023. Yeah. And so instead of creating a new episode from scratch, what we thought we'd do is just kind of look back on the year and go over some of the main themes that we've hit on the podcast and share some clips with you from what we feel like are some highlights of things we've covered this year. Yeah, it's great. I mean, if you think about probably over 50 new episodes this year, how many of those are people actually remembering? I don't know. Do they all stick with you? Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But today you'll get a good overall picture of, what did you pick, three topics? Yes. Great, three topics that you hear all the time, Uh topics that people want to know about, and we're pulling some of the best conversations from each of those. We are. And you say people don't remember them. I don't remember them. So <laughs> This will be good for you, yeah, too, so Julie. A good refresher. I know. When we were looking through the list, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. I did have a conversation with that guy, you know, in January. That feels like five years ago. Yeah. That was a good conversation. It's awesome. I, well, I'm excited to hear them all today and listen through them here with you and with our audience. Yeah. And so we will link to also these episodes that we are highlighting. So if you happen to miss them the first time around, this might entice you to go back and listen to the whole thing. The good the good stuff keeps coming. What well, a good year. I hope so. That's yeah. what we hope to do. <laughs> all right. So uh, people sometimes ask me in this work, like what new questions are coming to your ministry. Yeah. Because we get a lot of the same old questions. You do. Uh, yeah. yeah. The same some... 10 or 12 hit you over and over yes, again. Yes, <laughs> that is true. Uh-huh. But there are some new ones. Okay. And within the last few years, a lot of them have to do with, tra- with transgender because mm-hmm. this is such a new trend in our culture mm-hmm. that I think parents and youth leaders and just your average person trying to navigate, like, what do we do with pronouns? And how do I love somebody who's transgender? And what do I do if my kid is is saying they're non-binary? All these things are hitting us. Mm-hmm. And there really has been no thinking going forward on how we're going to address this because it just kind of came out of the blue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, leave it to Julie to not shy away from it. So you got to have some great conversations over the year on this. And I think we're going to start with one 
that we had at the beginning of this year, right? Yeah. That you had with Carl Truman? Yeah. It was based on his book, A Strange New World, which is one that I highly recommend. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, but Carl, who's a professor at Grove City, he goes into the things that have been happening over the last 100 to 200 years that have kind of set the stage for where we are today, mm. not just with the sexual revolution, but specifically the transgender movement. So I think it's one thing to say, okay, how do we respond to this cultural moment? But it's a whole nother thing to step back and say, how did we get here? Yeah, the big picture, just like we were talking about at the beginning of the episode, getting that for this very topic. Yeah, and I, I've heard people say that over this last year, like how in the world do we get to the place where we're not sure what it is to be a man or a woman anymore? Mm. Like, do we just wake up and, and realize that? And so Carl really gets into some of the threads of that. But we're just gonna listen to a small clip of my conversation with Carl. Specifically, he talks about the importance of having compassion for people who are stuck in the middle of this. So give it a listen. How does understanding the deep roots help that parent, uh, that family member who is dealing with this today? Again, of course, I would always make a distinction between what I would call the the general cultural or political context, which is the one I was talking about just now, and then the the many individual stories, tragic individual stories that make up day-to-day life for most people. And you're, you're rightly highlighting that for most people, the way they're going to experience this problem is not in the abstract policy or culture level. It's going to be at the intimate personal level. It's going to be a brother, a sister, a husband, a wife, a daughter, a parent. Somebody's going to be struggling with this. And again, there I think that understanding the problem, it can make us, first of all, more empathetic with the people struggling with it. One of the things that uh, uh, some people often say, I've heard said is, well, you know, this stuff's only emerged in the last 100, 100, nobody 300 years ago was struggling with this. And and the, the conclusion they seem to draw from that is, so it's not real, the pain being felt or, or the confusion being helped by this child is not real. Well, I use an example in, in class, I'd say to the students, you know, how many of you own smartphones? They all put their hands up and say, okay, I'm gonna randomly confiscate a couple of smartphones. Don't worry, I'll give them back to you a year from now. Uh, <laughs> how do you feel about that? Well, they say, well, we're gonna feel very anxious and distressed and upset. And of course, what I'm, uh, I, I then comment, well, you know, if, if in 1985, you'd said to me as a freshman at college, I'm gonna confiscate your cell phone, I'd have shrugged my shoulder, wouldn't have cared less. But the pain and anxiety you feel is real, even though it is, if you like, created by the historical circumstances in which you find yourself. So one of the things I think I I want to try to do in in my work is, is make people realize that just because struggling with gay identity or struggling with transgenderism is a relatively new thing, in the culture doesn't mean it isn't real and doesn't mean it isn't painful. So that would be be one thing that I think uh, is is useful from learning uh, the history. Secondly, I think that the whole issue of identity is key. My generation probably, and certainly the generation of my parents and my grandparents, tended to think about these issues in terms of behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, homosexuality is a set of behaviors. I think one thing that parents need to understand today is when a a child comes, I'll give you an example. I was giving a talk at a church a few weeks ago and a young young guy, I think he was about 12, came up to talk to me afterwards and he said, uh, I I used to be bisexual, but it wasn't working for me, so now I'm straight. Mm. And 
in the course of the conversation with this young man, it, it emerged that he'd never had a sexual experience in his life. Yeah. Uh, that he was not talking about relationships he'd been involved in. He was talking about what he perceived to be inner desires. And so I think the second thing that particularly parents of, of my generation uh, and perhaps the generation just below me, but I think it's, it's becoming easier for younger people to grasp is to understand that the debates about sexuality are not primarily debates about behavior. They're debates about identity. And I think that's uh, an important point to make. In your book, you put it this way, I'm paraphrasing, but sexuality is no longer something we do, it's who we are. Yeah. And that's a critical shift. So it's not just about uh, self-will and discipline, and it it really is about understanding the self, which, as you're mentioning, gives us a lot of empathy. I really appreciate this, like, big picture view of this conversation and the individual one-on-one empathy at the same time. Mm -hmm. Like, he did such a good job of marrying those two you know like how do we take in this big cultural understanding but also realize this it's very much about this personal identity for each person involved right and this is really around the whole lgbtq conversation yeah and hannah i think that's so critical for us to keep in mind even as we interact with our world Mm -hmm. there's there's two things happening at once yes there's this big cultural trend that we need to understand and we need to stand against Mm -hmm. But then there are individuals who are caught in the middle of it, and we need to walk with them and have empathy for them and be on a journey with them. And I think sometimes when you try to be kind and friendly to the big cultural, I'm going to use the word agenda, like it's friendship with the world and we're not effective. But then when you take sort of that standing strong mentality and apply it to an interpersonal relationship, again, we're not effective because we're not, we're not building a bridge of relationship that actually allows us to share the gospel and the love of Christ. Yeah, and I think also not effective if we only kind of look at one of those sides yep. exclusively. Yeah. Because sometimes that's a temptation, just like he said. Like, we look at this big picture cultural story, of like, this wasn't here, you know, mm-hmm. so many years ago, and then we just kind of shut everything else down. Mm-hmm. So... I also appreciated his beautiful accent. I think I know. that really helps you <laughs> it does. have any kind of hard he conversation. Just, he just sounds smarter. Yeah. Too. I just, yes. <laughs> yeah, but such good wisdom there, you know, accent and all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we're talking about walking with people, um, there are a lot of, I think, Christians who have strong thoughts and opinions and and attitudes about the LGBTQ movement, particularly transgender but they really have never sat and talked and walked with somebody who's in the thick of it and heard the pain of what's going on. So this next clip is really, I think it's from the most popular downloaded episode we had this year. Get out. Yeah. Well, that's a fun one. And it's Laura Perry Smaltz, and she shared her very personal testimony of being transgender, actually going through the surgery to try to become a man, and really processed what that did. And this interview, I think, was like an hour. It was one of our longest ones. But like I said, I, I got so much feedback from it, how helpful it was, how moving it was. Um, so let's just hear a small clip of that. When on this journey did you begin to transfer this to questions about gender? You know, as a, a child, I was really jealous of my brother's relationship with my mom. And especially after I heard about the two miscarriages, I really began to um, believe, well, maybe mom wishes I had been one of the boys instead. 
And so I was very, very jealous of my brother. I idolized my brother. And my sister didn't want much to do with me either. She was kind of in her own world. And so I really spent all my time with my brother as a little child. And I would play with his toys. I would wear his clothes. And I just began to, I began to write stories about me being a boy. And I lived in this fantasy world. And I was obsessed with video games. I played lots and lots and lots of video games. And I always was a male character. Mm. So this was kind of a fantasy world, but I didn't, I'd never heard the word transgender. So that wasn't even on my radar that that was a possibility, but I, I was jealous of boys and I wanted to be a boy. But then when I was in um, middle school, I was in eighth grade, I was having lots of health problems and I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome. And I was told I would likely never get pregnant. And I was in excruciating agony all the time. And I just began to believe that I was never going to get pregnant. And for whatever reason, I don't know where this lie came into my heart, but I began to really believe that I was never going to get married, that I was never going to be good enough to be a wife. And uh, because I was just this damaged, broken girl. And I really began to look for love in all the wrong places. My dad and I didn't have a good relationship anymore. He was, um, he was working a lot. My mom said my dad's job just about killed him in the last few years. He was she said he was becoming gray and ashen just because he was under mm. so much stress and working so many hours. And so I started looking for that love and affection, you know, in the arms of men. But I was I was giving away anything they wanted for free. And I always thought if I can give them what they want, then they will want me. But they never did. They threw me away. They, you know, used, abused, uh, just rejected and dumped over and over and over again. And I was also hearing then talk about women like they were absolute trash. I mean, not even necessarily about me, but just the way they talked about women in general was awful when I was in high school and college. And you would hear, you know, guys always wanted these girls and they would talk about scoring with them and everything. And yet at the, out of the same mouth, they're talking about women like they're dirty and filthy and they're just trash and women aren't worth anything. And so I really began to believe these lies that I had no worth or value as a woman. And so I just was becoming more and more sexual because I knew that was the only thing men valued in a woman. That was my belief. And in college, I was deep in pornography addiction. And then I, I started acting out more and more. I had gained a lot of weight and I didn't have any, I had no self-esteem. So I couldn't even, I was trying to give it away free and still couldn't get men to love me. And so I finally joined an adult hookup site and began having um, random one night stands all over the state. And I remember going to these encounters so hopeful that this man would actually like me and want to be with me. You know, I was just, I didn't understand what I was doing. I mean, I did, but I, there was always this hope that one of them's actually going to love me and want to keep me. Um, but I would leave feeling so ashamed. It's so dirty and so worthless and just emptiness and the ache in my heart. And so it was after that, that I was about um, 25 at the time. And I thought, you know, the reason this never works, the reason I'm never happy is because I was supposed to be the man. If I was the man, I know how to treat a woman. And so I, and I looked back on my childhood. Once I really kind of embraced that lie, I looked back on my childhood and, and it was like, it all makes sense. I felt like a boy my entire life. And I didn't see where those lies had crept in. I just remembered playing with my brother's toys, wearing his clothes, always wanting to be with my brother. And I had more testosterone naturally. So I was very strong for a girl. And so I, I began to think about all these things that sort of gave me justification for why I was supposed to be a man. 
Well, Hannah, when I first had that conversation with Laura, what struck me, and I think that clip even shows it, is how complex uh, a person's journey is and how many lies upon lies upon lies uh, lead a person to... And just levels of brokenness. Yes. You hear this disconnection with her family. You hear this struggle with her jealousy with her siblings and trouble with her dad. Like, Mm -hmm. you're right. Layers and layers and so many pieces. The promiscuity, the abuse. Yeah. and Laura's story is her story. It doesn't mean that everyone who would identify as transgender has that same thread of stories, but but it's complicated. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of people who are wrestling with gender have this history of wounds and questions and and lies that they're believing. So um, so it gives me great empathy yeah. to say that you don't just go up to somebody and say, like, I refuse to call you by this name, but let me get to know you and what led you to this place and really lean into where the pain is so that we can minister. And it just, in a funny way, Julie, feels like every story that so many of us can relate to of leaning into something that we think is going to bring the happiness we're longing for. Mm -hmm. You know, for some of us, that may be a story that has involved different relationships or Mm -hmm. alcohol or changing a job. I mean, literally anything that we, surely this will bring this happiness. Surely this is what I'm longing for, what I'm looking for. At the end of the episode, even when you hear her talking about transitioning back into her true identity as a woman, she pretty much is saying this, like this longing and happiness that I thought I was going to uncover Mm -hmm. by transitioning to a male was not there. Mm -hmm. Like this thing I was looking for wasn't even there. Which, I, again, so many of us have had that same experience, just maybe not with transgender, but with other longings that we've had. You're so right, Hannah. And the more I do this work, the more I realize that there are these deeply embedded kind of cultural narratives that we don't push back on, we don't question, we just sort of take and then Christianize them. And one of those is the whole idea of marriage being your primary source of fulfillment, And that has led to so many people who are single and frustrated and feeling unfulfilled, like God is holding out on them. It plays out in Christians who are same-sex attracted and saying, well, then where can I find love and fulfillment? It even plays out in marriage. And so this next clip we're going to listen to is Cutter Calloway. He wrote a book called Breaking the Marriage Idol. And some of the things he says in this short clip are a little controversial. And then in the whole episode, I had the opportunity to ask further questions and push back a little bit. But his whole concept is that we have so elevated marriage in our, even our Christian society, that it skews how we view relationships and singleness in the family of God. So let's give it a listen. So a major premise that you have in this conversation is that we need to challenge the assumption of marriage being sort of the default, that mm-hmm. most people are going to get married, that marriage is the right thing. It's the right relationship for most people. And, you know, I think some churches would even go so far as to, they don't say it out loud. They at least say it intuitively that you're not a complete mature person until you get married. And they might add and have children. So, mm-hmm. Let's talk about that for a minute. Like, why is that not the right assumption for us to be making? Well, I think there's a number of reasons why it's not the right assumption. I've actually been shocked 
by how, you know, usually I'll say it's usually implicit or implied. Mm -hmm. No one will come out and say it. And yet, actually, I end up, people send me examples of like, actually, here's my pastor just said this, right? And and Mm -hmm. sometimes it really just is flat out. Explicit. God made you for marriage. Right. Here it is. I've seen it. I've heard it. Yeah. And then that matches up with another kind of what I would call the myth of the nuclear family, where we even say societally, that's the core, right? If Mm -hmm. you you start poking at not just family, but the nuclear family, all of Western society will break down, right? Okay. The reason that I think for Christians, uh, we want to challenge that as the norm. Now, again, uh, for anyone who reads the book, I'm not saying that marriage is bad or people shouldn't pursue it. It's a great, wonderful, good designed by God. But in terms of it being the expectation that everyone is moving toward in which we should uh, send them, I think there's a few reasons why we challenge that assumption. One, it's just basic statistics <laughs> that marriage is very hard and requires a lot of both partners in it and it and demands a, a great deal of the individuals that not everyone is necessarily called to do for all sorts of reasons. And to say that everyone's calling can incorporate marriage into their lives, I think is just works against the examples we see in scripture, um, both of the actual apostles, the life of Jesus, many of our great patrons in scripture, but then also in church history in terms of how we've received the Christian faith. So that's one thing, just looking at like what actually is and who has been married, who has not throughout church history and in, in scripture. But the other side of it is more theological. And that would be, what does it mean to be human? And a lot of what scripture gives us is this question. And I think when we reread it, one of the tendencies of, of why we get the people that say, oh, you ought to be married, is because they're reading passages in the Bible that really are getting at what is a human. <laughs> and sometimes marriage is involved in that, the metaphors and whatnot. And we quickly punt to, oh, to be fully human means to be married or in this kind of relationship. I think that's a misreading. I think mm-hmm. what, what the scripture is getting at is a deep sense of relationality, a deep sense of submission to the other, sort of unity and difference, um, all these, a, a sexed existence so that we are actually sexual, sensual creatures. All of those things are involved, but it doesn't necessarily land or end in marriage. And the, you know, very easy, quick, quick reasons are, well, if we're going to say that to be fully human is to be married, to fully live out your vocation, to be a full thriving member of the community of faith requires marriage, you immediately stumble upon the fact that Jesus, the most full human that has ever existed, was not married, did not have sex, and in fact tells us about the kingdom to come where we will not be married or giving each other marriage. So I go, if the kingdom to come, we won't be married, and the image of God who we are emulating is not married, why are we suggesting that to be fully human, you ought to be married? So that's the more theological side. And for those couple of reasons, both the describing what is and then the theology of what ought to be or what will be are the main reasons where I go, I, I think we need to rethink how we're talking about that. Mm. Well, I feel like I'm a pretty loyal job with Julie listener, but I don't think I heard this episode. And the whole time he's talking, I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Talk to me. I got to listen to that episode. Mm-hmm. That's just what I'm thinking. I have never, ever once heard someone talk about Jesus's marital status in relation to any of this conversation. Really? Wow. I don't live in this world. Like no, you, you don't live I'm in this world. I'm just a regular right. <laughs> 30-something mom. 
Yeah, I don't know. Just I that whole conversation just around what is the fullness of being human Mm -hmm. thoughts on loneliness, like, Mm -hmm. Oh, the marriage is the cure to that man. So many of those pieces are fascinating to me. Yeah, they really are. And again, it's, it's pushing on assumptions that really are very Western and American Mm -hmm. that we've just kind of assumed are Christian. Now, when I first read Cutter's book and even through this conversation, when he said things like, I'm, I'm not so sure we should talk about the nuclear family being like the foundation of society. I did push back on that a little bit because I do think like the nuclear family, particularly the Christian nuclear family, is a key foundation to a healthy society. Mm-hmm. And I think we see that in Genesis. But what is added to it, particularly in the New Testament, is that the family of God must also be a key foundation of society. And when we lean only on the nuclear family, we end up alienating people and putting way too much pressure on the husband, wife, and kids instead of saying, no, actually, Jesus put way more emphasis on what it was to be in the family of God. Is this the same person who wrote that children's book that you gave me? No, it's not. But the next person we're going to listen to is. Get out. <laughs> yeah. What kind of segue was that? I, you didn't even know that. <laughs> yes. That's incredible. Well, I was just thinking, you know, as a parent, you as I'm having these conversations with you and listening to this, there's always this filter of what does this look like in my own heart? What does yeah. it look like in my own life? And how am I talking about this with even my own kids and my own family? And I just love these conversations for that reason, because it hits so many of those levels. And it just sounded a lot like that book you gave me. That is so funny, because I gave you Sam Alberry's book, Marriage is God's Signpost, I yes. think it's called. My five-year-old wants to read it all the time. Wow, he look loves at it. that. I know. I love it. Yeah. yeah I give weird baby gifts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, she also gave me a book on where do babies come from for kids. So. I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I said, Hannah, no one else is going to give you this. So, And they're great. My good. kids, well, Harvey loves them. That's so. good. Well, Sam Alberry is another uh, job with Julie Guest, who is very popular, well-respected. I just learned an awful lot from him. And he also has an amazing accent. Man, you know how to pick them. I do. <laughs> and if you don't know Sam's story, he is lifelong same-sex attracted Christian, who is also a pastor. He's single and very thoughtful on these topics. So uh, he's picking up on that same theme of when we put all the emphasis of intimacy on marriage, it not only creates loneliness for singles, but it also creates the potential for loneliness for married couples. So take a listen. Well, another one of the myths that you address in the book is that if you're single, you're destined to be lonely. Yeah. And that's not true, huh? It shouldn't be true. It can sometimes feel like that's the case because the way we've the emotional economy of the western world is very much you are part of a romantic couple or throuple these days or whatever Mm. or you're on your own Um, we've sort of dropped out the category of wider community wider friendships extended family the other forms of social cohesion and non-romantic intimacy that have been part and parcel of many other cultures for eons and we see throughout the whole Bible. So we've kind of made it a very binary thing in the Western world where you're either romantically fulfilled and you have intimacy or you don't have anything. Mm-hmm. And in in this respect, <laughs> I want to push for something non-binary and to say actually that the Bible gives us much broader categories of what intimacy and friendship and 
community and even family look like than we tend to have in the Western world today. Mm. And the church is meant to be the place where those, all of those forms of intimacy are facilitated and, and celebrated and where someone growing up in the church should be able to look around them at the wider church family and think, actually, it's not whether I'm married or not that's going to determine whether I have deep community. Mm. That's not going to be the sort of the big deciding factor. Well, that's a systemic problem, though. And, oh, it is. I mean, that's, and I guess the challenge is for the single who's listening and saying, I am lonely yeah. because this is where I live, is the only option then to move to another country that has a, a better system of church and community. Um, like, like, I, and I guess there's yeah. two pieces to that question. First of all, what does the individual do? But mm. then, then we can talk about how the church yeah. needs to be growing and shifting. Yeah, I think for the individual, it's to do what you can, not to have the mindset of, here I am, why is no one knocking on my door? But to think, actually, whose door do I need to go and knock on? I've known many married couples who are lonely mm -hmm. as a couple. Mm -hmm. And so it's easy to think, oh, it's, this is just me as a single person. Everyone else is is happy. But actually, there might be other people who need you to knock on their door and for you to take the initiative with them. And the people that you assume aren't lonely might actually be more lonely than you think. This conversation reminds me so much of uh, a talk I had with one of my friends actually this year. She's in her 30s, she's single, and was giving some of these same conversations that we just heard from Sam around loneliness. And I, I just right out the gate, I'm just listening. You know, I'm mm -hmm. not trying to be like adding anything or coming in with any sort of you know, I always try, listen first, listen first. And I'm taking this in. And all I could say at the end of it is, do you know I feel that way a lot too? Mm. And I think there was something really powerful just for her to hear that from someone who is married with three kids. Because okay. often you just think, if I filled my house with a spouse and kids, I would not feel this way. Mm. So yeah, I just love how Sam was talking about that and just even this cultural trend around loneliness. Yeah. And I think people that are listening and know you a little bit would be like, wait, Hannah's lonely? <laughs> Not just are you married with three kids, yeah. but you're a very friendly, outgoing person. I know. It's shocking, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I I know that it is a lot right now with the stage of life I'm in, being home so much with these tiny, cute, adorable little nitzes who are very dependent on me, that you could still be surrounded by life and activity and have that loneliness at times because I'm at home with three kids all the time. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I don't know. I just appreciate the honesty in that through that conversation of it isn't just related to your marital status, you know, this bigger understanding around it. Yeah. Well, Hannah, we're going to take a turn here because not only do married people sometimes feel lonely, I know this is going to shock you, but sometimes married people have trouble getting on the same page when it comes to sexuality. Really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, see, that this is another myth that I think uh, a lot of singles can believe. Like, yeah. if I get married, all my sexual needs and desires and thoughts are going to be met. Yeah. And that doesn't usually happen. That is so much of what I feel as though this ministry started with back 11 years ago, Julie, is having some of these conversations really starting there around this, like, sexual compatibility, yes. you know, within your marriage. Uh-huh. And we're still talking about it. <laughs> 
And it's still a big conversation. Yes, and this was another one of our most highly downloaded episodes. And I think we might have even aired it twice this year because uh, I think we did like er, way early in the year and then mm. we we used it again for our user journeys because it was such a great, insightful conversation. But uh, the snippet you're going to hear is from the conversation I had with Shanti Feldhahn and Dr. Michael Seitzma talking about how couples may not be as far apart in compatibility as they think they are. So take a listen. Honestly, one of the big overarching things, and this is, I'll go straight to what I think is super helpful for many average couples, is that when there is probably one of the most common heartbreaks in marriage around sex and intimacy is sort of that simple pain of one person wants more than another, right? Like it's just a a mismatch in frequency and desired frequency. And when that happens, there's so much that comes along with it. Why aren't you interested? Am I not desirable? Why am I not interested? (laughs) You know, what's going on underneath the surface? And there's all this stuff that tends, and the average couple, me sort of being an example of just the average person, the average person, their brain thinks, well, it's just because one person has a higher desire than another. Right, like one person has a higher sex drive, the other person just—I mean—that would be that, a logical. Conclusion. That would be the logical conclusion that that's kind of the reason for all of that. And what we found in the research is that's actually not the reason for many of those cases, maybe even most of those cases. And in fact, most couples actually are quite a lot more similar in their kind of what they're interested in, in terms of frequency than we think. So there's other reasons running under the surface. We're a lot closer than we think. What are those other reasons? And that was a lot of what we were trying to dig out in the research of, oh, well, if okay, if we actually desire a frequency that's not that far apart, and yet we're still having these hurts and heartaches because we're not connecting, what are the other things that are so, going on? So just to summarize that, you're saying that the research showed that most couples don't have a discrepancy in desire? They do have a discrepancy in desire. Most couples do. 22% but 21% were, were equal. Were equal. Mm-hmm. But that means the bulk of couples, there was a discrepancy. But it's not as great of a discrepancy as what they believe it is. So doing a dyadic data, doing a matched pairs, what it's called, where we're doing a survey of both the husband and the wife when we know who's married to who. Mm-hmm. So we can ask cross questions, like we can ask the husband, how much would you like? And how much do you think your wife would like? And we can ask the wife, how much would you like? And how much do you think your husband would like? And then we can compare answers to see who understands each other and who, and husbands tend to underestimate their wife's level of desire pretty consistently. And that shows up in other research too, not just our own. But the further apart the perceptions are, the more woundedness, the more damage, the more strife and conflict we have. And as Shanti said, what we found is actually couples are far closer together in their desire than they believe they are. It's really interesting, actually. And what that means for us is if we lean in and we're curious with each other, how that would show up in my office is I'll look at a wife and I'll say, so if it were totally up to you, how often would you like to have sex? And she'd go, I don't, one to two times a week. Mm -hmm. 
And I look at the husband and I say, how often would you like to? And he commonly says, oh, two to three times a week. Mm-hmm. And I look at him and say, there's not much difference between two and two. Yeah. You know, th- yeah. there really isn't. So, yeah, she's a little bit lower than him. Sometimes it's, you know, about a quarter of the time it's reversed. She's higher than him. But then if I ask him, how often do you think your wife wants to have sex? And he goes, never. Well, there's why, a big difference. That? Yeah, that's yeah. that's the right question. Because there's a big difference between never and two times a week. Yep. And that one spouse will will underestimate the other so greatly that distance is causing pain in the relationship. For them to lean in and uh, for this example to ask him, well, what if your wife's telling the truth that she would like it one to two times a week? And then you see him look over and say, wait, you do? Well, why aren't we? And that's the right that's question. That's the right question. Sometimes though, it's just easier to blame it on that you have a different desire. You know what I mean? Or <laughs> like a mismatched, what word did they use? Yeah, mismatched desire yeah. or discrepancy. Just desire feels discrepancy. easier. Why like, is that easier than what? Having to dig into the real reason why. Mm-hmm. You know, as he's talking about that and he's he's kind of pushing in and more of those questions. It's like, okay, so then why is it? You're mm-hmm. like, Ooh, that feels like you gotta get <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> feels like deeper work. So it makes sense why so many people kind of stop there and just say, huh. Yeah. We have mixed match desire. It is deeper work. But yeah. the good thing about the deeper work is you're not just working on your sex life. You're actually working on your marriage. Two for one. Yeah. You're yeah. working on intimacy. Yeah. Yeah. Those two are such a great team in that episode of just bringing data with real life story. Mm-hmm. And which apparently seems to be the theme of this whole Java with Julie <laughs> is understanding this bigger picture and this more personalized one at the same time. Um, but yeah, I just love how. I can't ever pronounce his last name correctly. Seitzma. Seitzma. Mm-hmm. I love that whole conversation and bringing data into it. It's so fascinating. Yeah, it is. He he is a very interesting speaker. And he'll be at our virtual Reclaim conference coming up in February. So Get you can tickets. register for that. Yep, just a little plug for that. Well, Hannah, the desire discrepancy that, that Shanti and Michael were just talking about, like that can cause a lot of tension, conflict, pain in a marriage but it's nothing like what some other couples are walking through. Mm-hmm. And this year, we didn't shy away from those topics either, talking about things like sexual addiction and pornography and betrayal affairs. We've had several episodes that deal with that group of topics because so many people are walking through it. Mm-hmm. And so the last clip we're going to listen to is with my friend Dana Gresh. We and love a conversation with Dana Gresh. We do. Dana's awesome. And um, she wrote a book called Happily Even After, which is a clever title. It is a good one. <laughs> and in her book and in this podcast interview, she shares very openly, obviously with her husband's permission of what they've walked through. And her book is just an excellent resource as a spiritual guide for that wife who's walking through uh, betrayal, sexual addiction, those deep wounds that can happen in marriage. So here's Dana Gresh. Well, you know, we, before we were married, Bob confessed to me that he really was tempted by pornography, that he had a problem with lust, but he was a virgin. So we both kind of looked at each other naively and said, well, once you start having sex, this problem will go away. I found that that's a really common lie that many couples believe. Mm -hmm. It didn't go away. And it was devastating. The first year of our marriage was really hard. And there were a lot of tears because we were both completely devastated. Bob probably more so than me, because I still had a lot of naivete and thought, 
we'll figure this out. Didn't realize we were going to be in decades long battle, but we did find, I would say recovery in the first three years through Christian counseling. And it wasn't easy finding the right counselor. We went through a bunch that weren't the right match, but we found this almost idyllic therapist, Tippy Duncan, who walked with us so well. But then we moved and lost that support. We moved to another part of the country. And that's when we started to walk through a cycle mm-hmm. of victory and loss, victory and loss. And it really wasn't until we hit ground zero within the last decade that we went through something so devastating. And that's what you walked me through, friend, where we began to just roll up our sleeves and we were warfare-like about finding out what will it take for us to live in victory? Because the Bible says we can. So Mm -hmm. why aren't we? Why isn't he? Why isn't our marriage walking in a place of consistent directional wholeness? And that was a game changer for us, the battle that we faced that time. And it really has been a significant shift in Bob's battle. He'll tell you just up front, The difference was instead of weekly accountability, he has daily accountability. He lives daily tethered to men of God that are willing to hold his feet to the fire. And sometimes that's an appointment with a therapist. Sometimes it's his small group. Sometimes it's a 12-step group. But you can't do this alone. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's the Cliff Notes version. There's so much, Julie, with the episodes that we've gone through that kind of bounce between the these like factual big picture thoughts and then the personal story Mm -hmm. and I love Dana's honesty with the good and the hard and all these pieces back and forth between her and her husband I remember the first time hearing that episode after having read Dana's books and you know watched her in ministry for so many years and just being so encouraged by her honesty and all these pieces Mm -hmm. man yeah. And Hannah, that's a big part of kind of the fabric of authentic intimacy is mm-hmm. we want to have the big conversations. We want to push into the tensions of the, what does the Bible say about this and that and have those those bigger conversations. But at the same time, we want to remember that if you're the person who's walking through that issue, it's a whole different deal. Not that biblical truth isn't a guide and important but it's not as easy as just do these three things and your marriage is fixed or you're no longer lonely. Like it's a journey Mm -hmm. and it can be drudgery at times where it's just like, am I all alone? And so we have intentionally built this ministry, not just to be content for you, encouragement through the podcast or blogs or, or books, but also community for you. Because if you found yourself identifying with one of these clips that we shared, whether you have a transgender child or you're lonely and you're wondering where God is in your singleness or you're really wounded or lonely or frustrated in your marriage, a podcast isn't going to be the fix. It might help you, but you need other people around you who know what that feels like Mm -hmm. and who can walk with you towards who God is and what it looks like for him to heal. Well, pretty beautiful, Julie, that 2023 has been another year of those things for authentic intimacy. Yeah. You know, between the podcast and all you guys have done, even with your online communities and Bible studies, it's mm -hmm. just 
it's so fun. Yeah. It's beautiful. And whereas we have, you know, tens of thousands of people who listen to this podcast, we have smaller groups. Uh, we've had, I think, five to 600 people going through these small online book study groups that really are a form of discipleship. Our new online coaching intensives, which is for people who are saying, hey, I need more. Like, I want to go deeper with this particular pain point and events and conferences and and also our leader training. We're spending a lot of time and energy helping pastors and Christian leaders feel equipped and have more of a discipleship framework for how they address these sexual issues within ministry. Julie, you're just, this is all just so 2023. Don't you love it? It's like, <laughs> it's online. It's virtual. You get it on your phone. You connect with people all over. It's just beautiful. It's, it's amazing. Like, we are using the internet for good over here. Yeah, all right. That's what we hope and pray <laughs> that we're doing. I love it. Yeah. I just, I love the passion you have for discipleship. I think that is rare to find in a large teaching ministry at times. And I just think the whole authentic intimacy team, I just see the passion and the beauty and the intentionality in it. And mm. I love it. Yeah. Thanks, Another Anna. great year. Thanks, Anna. A lot to praise God for. Yeah. And if you, as you're listening, have been impacted by authentic intimacy this year, would you consider giving a gift? About half of our budget comes from donations. That's so a, a lot. It is. Yeah. And so the extent to which people partner with us financially allows us um, to offer things for free or at a very low cost so people can get the kind of resources they need. And it helps us grow which we really have been investing a lot this year in growth, and we're excited to see what God's going to do with that investment. If you would like to donate to Authentic Intimacy, there's a link in the show notes that you can click. And let me just say in advance, thank you so much for your support and for being with us throughout this whole year. I prayerfully look forward to all God is going to do in the next year. Now, Monday is Christmas, so we will not have an episode for you on that day. But hold out until Thursday and we'll drop a bonus episode on why knowing your story is an important step in your healing. We thought that would be a great episode to end the year with. Thanks for listening to Java with Julie. Merry Christmas, and I look forward to seeing you next time.